Hello and welcome to Make Language Great Again. Today it is my great joy and pleasure to welcome Diane Perlman, who is a psychologist and she has some interesting ideas. So welcome, Diane. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Of course, it's my pleasure. So uh, let's start with a little bit about yourself. I'm sure you'll be better than me <laughs> talking about yourself. So, so I mean, my back, professionally, my background, I'm a clinical psychologist, um, but I'm also in the area of political psychology and psychoneuroimmunology. And you know, I've, I have a lifelong interest in human rights and a sense of truth and justice. And also one thing that drives me is when I was a teenager, I first became, when I first became conscious of the Holocaust. So in addition to the usual horror that everybody, you know, reacts to, I was intrigued about like, how could human beings do such a thing? And how could society allow it? So I asked my mother, like, how did you let this happen? Like, how did people let this happen? And she said, we didn't know. So it really stuck with me that it, you can't not know things. It's a sin to not know things. And in um, 1981, I'm from Philadelphia. I saw a sign on the at University of Pennsylvania. I wasn't a student at University of Pennsylvania, but I saw a sign about a symposium on um, medical consequences of nuclear war. And I felt like, oh, I, I have to be there. I'm supposed to go to that. So it was a day-long symposium. And in, in the 80s, um, Helen Caldicott, who's a physician with Physicians for Social Responsibility, and Vic Seidel and others were doing something that was called the bombing run, which was going around, you know, to different cities and doing these symposia. And, you know, they put up a map of, like, Philadelphia, and this is ground zero, and here everyone would be vaporized, and here there'd be blast effects and burn effects and a fireball. And... There won't be enough physicians and the, you know, the living will envy the dead. And um, so that day completely blew my mind. I couldn't eat dinner. I was, um, it really transformed me. And I had the sense that um, the Holocaust happened because people couldn't imagine that it could happen. But like with nuclear war, like we know, we, now we can imagine it can happen. So we, they couldn't prevent it because they couldn't imagine it. But we can imagine this, so we have to prevent it. So I was, you know, having this thought experiment or this um, koan, like, how do you prevent the inevitable or things you can't, things can't be inevitable. So that kind of consciousness has been my motivating force for, you know, whatever I've done in, in my life. And I, I've been involved in the nuclear issue since then. So um, I started I started working on children's fear of nuclear war. And there were a lot of people working on that. And, and in the 80s, children were having nightmares. And there was this was on the covers of magazines, and schools were dealing with it. And there was a film the day after. Um, and I, I formed a group called Peace Research Associates with other psychologists, family therapists, and we did a workshop for people in the helping professions. And then I got into the, with through Jerome Frank, um, who was working on this, the image of the enemy and the psychology of the enemy and the arms race. So I started doing slideshows on the image of the enemy. And um, so I've been involved in the nuclear issue ever since then. Wow, it's really interesting because I remember when my 
our genius teacher at school told us that America was going to bomb us. <laughs> I was scared. I was, I mean, I actually distinctly remember how it changed me because I had no idea before. And then all of a sudden I was expecting a missile to flow into the window through the curtain. And I was just staring at that window. Like, it's amazing. Like, it's uh -huh. amazing what they did. And I had no idea that there was such discipline. So it is, it is completely fascinating. Right. So you understand. So, and I've been interested in psychological manipulation of fear, which is, you know, let, you know, every war, you know, the run up every war and certainly right now, you know, with, with COVID every, um, and also after nine 11, that it's all very intentional and extremely well designed and planned and coordinated, um, you know, even to the extent like alternating periods of like hope and then fear and then hope and then fear and just really you know playing with our psyches on that one well that is straight out of the CIA torture manual you know the, the famous one where they talk about how when they want to get a confession out of somebody making their life unbearable is not enough because people can adjust to even the most unbearable things but lack of predictability and changing the condition and making torture random was that, that was the method, creating this complete lack of any grounding. Right, right. I, I mean, I'm just free associating, but even like with um, studies on child rearing, you know, whether it's better to have like a strict parent or a permissive parent, but the, the most problematic one was to have inconsistent parenting because then the child couldn't figure out what to do. So that's true. But also it's not there. Well, you're saying there's an experience of unpredictability, but there's also a manipulation. So like after 9-11, after there would be like code orange and code red and that they would like sort of raise it like before the election. And well, definitely with the current situation, I don't think that anybody's trying to calm anybody down. <laughs> oh, well, only um, to prepare them for the next, you know, fear, but then people are catching on like so. Growing up in Moscow, I grew up on movies about World War II and, you know, the, the, the Nazis. I mean, I only know two phrases in German and they're not good. So <laughs> they're like, I kill you and things like that. So I grew up on that. So I never associated Germany with anything good, meaning that obviously I people in the modernity Mm -hmm. you know people who learn german or people who go to germany like that's all fine obviously but that image of a nazi of a german nazi was the horrifying image right. and then i spent i mean i never really even german language kind of freaked me out a little bit subconsciously i mean i didn't have an intellectual thing about it but it was just like something not good and then uh i in my adulthood i met a woman who is from Germany, she's when I mean, she's in Germany, and she was talking about how her family they hated Hitler, but then her grandfather had to go to war because if he didn't, then his family would be killed. So, it, for the first time in my life, I thought about it from that perspective, as in right. that total enemy, that absolute, undeniable enemy, evil, bad person, that they were actually human beings well some of them were sadistic but the ones who just did right. it because 
they didn't want their family to die. I mean, that's a tough choice. Right. So. And it's just so, so fascinating, that entire thing. Well, anyway, so getting back to getting back to you and to your story. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you okay, about... I just want to make a comment on what you just said. Yeah, yeah. That there, there are leaders and there are followers. So the leaders who set up the system of evil and domination and power and control and manipulation and abuse, and then a lot of the people that carry it out are normal people. I mean, uh, some people may get off on it. Some people, you know, probably are horrified but can't speak up. Um, and, um, you know, Hannah Wren's work on the banality of evil. And there were like Nazis that would like go and kill people and, you know, work in the concentration camps and they go home and play with their children and that they couldn't really find anything psychologically abnormal with, you know, with many of them. So the problem is to, for the people that are being manipulated to, um, you know, very few have the courage and this, kind of gets into the three groups that Desmond talks about. But if you, you had another question, we can. But I wanted to first ask you about your beautiful article on Ivermectin. That was actually how I found out about you. So mm -hmm. what brought you to write it? What inspired you? Okay. All right. So I'm... I tend to be interested in like one is issues of global survival, but also that I don't accept like terminal diagnoses or I, I challenge things like being inevitable. So um, I had a practice, I was interested in like say cancer and can alternative cancer treatment in, in the eighties and just that it didn't have to be a death sentence. So, um, and then I had a practice in psychoneuroimmunology, mind-body medicine, and, you know, learned a lot about sort of the beyond the cancer personality. And I, I worked with an organization in Philadelphia. It was originally called Foundation for Alternative Cancer Therapy, and then it changed to Center for Advancement in Cancer Education. So, you know, challenging chemotherapy, very similar to now. And, you know, people would laugh if you talk about vitamin C or looking at natural treatments or detoxification, and, you know, seeing where a lot of people were dying from the chemo, from their treatment. And, um, you know, I had a background in this and I've also been following the literature on um, child vaccines, like actual vaccines, you know, over the last 40 years and natural immunity. And when COVID began in March, 2020, uh, the first thing I did was I started Googling like natural treatment for COVID. And then I found, you know, like Dr. Paul Thomas or Tom Levy or different people. And then I saw that in China, they were doing trial, clinical trials with high dose inter intravenous vitamin C. And then they were doing that in Italy. And then I saw like no one was doing that here. So then I, I just started feeling like something was wrong. And then I saw, um, probably a lot of people saw Pierre Corey in December 8th, 2020, a little over a year ago. You know, he gave his testimony to the Senate and was talking, oh, I don't think it was about ivermectin then, but just about that we had natural early yeah. treatments. And then, oh, no, maybe he did talk about ivermectin then. So I started hearing people talk about it. So, you know, I'm always interested in something that's 
really safe, that's effective, that's inexpensive. And I knew about um, that about getting patents, and that you know, for decades, that um, people were suppressing information about you know vitamin C or natural supplements because or you know because botanicals because you can't patent them, and that people were pushing things that you get a patent on. And um, I used to watch the new, like Rachel Maddow and MSNBC, like pretty religiously. And then, and I also watch Fox News and I'd switch around to see what everyone was saying, like for years and years. And um, I'm also interested in the psychology of the political parties and the different consciousness. And um, then it reached a point like with COVID, like I couldn't stand it anymore. So I just stopped. And then I had a conversation with my sister and she said, oh, Rachel Maddow is really good. You should really, she did it. She's really doing great stuff. You should watch it. So I said, okay. So I just flipped it on, her on, and she's talking about horse medicine. She's talking about ivermectin. And I had been collecting that, you know, like every time I see an article, I sort of paste it in a document I have. So I've been collecting stuff about ivermectin. So when I heard that and how outrageous it was, it kind of gave me a hook for the article. So I, the article was an open letter to Rachel Maddow and just basically telling her, you know, I, you know, how I was a fan of her since the beginning, since Air America, since before she had her show, I remember her first show and that I thought she was really an intelligent, decent human being who cared about, you know, truth and had values. And I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile how she could be saying this about ivermectin so I, I challenged her and then I just presented all the data, one that, you know, that it won the Nobel Peace Prize and that originally it was not Peace Prize, the Nobel Prize for medicine in 2015. And that originally it was, um, it was anti-parasitic, but they, you know, gave to all these people for parasites and they found out that it was helping them with other problems. So they found out it was antiviral and anti-inflammatory and anti-cancer and then I saw this uh, seminar by this group in England called Bird, the British Ivermectin RD something. Um, so I watched uh, the, the seminar and he had like all the, their five different mechanisms. And then I saw somebody else where there are like 21 different mechanisms of Ivermectin. So I just think if something is true, it's true in, you can find truth in every way. You can, you, I mean, you can do a randomized control trial, but if something's actually true, you'll also find it in anecdotal evidence or in one patient. And what Pierre Corey was saying um, is that, you know, patients were coming into him sick and he didn't have time to wait for a randomized control trial, which would also be done on the old variant he had to deal with now and people like him and uh, Zelenko, Zev Zelenko, and who had, you know, did the hydroxychloroquine, but also interested in ivermectin, and um, Peter McAuliffe, they all, and uh, Paul Marek, anyway, they all share their information, so they work as a team, and they, every time they learn something, so they were doing a, an in vivo, live, in the moment experimentation, and just seeing what worked, and their patients were getting better. Well, your article was really beautiful, and I was laughing. Well, I did not know about Rachel Meadow until the middle of the Russia Gate. So <laughs> when I found out about her, I hear stories that she was good at some point. Uh, it's possible, 
I've never known good Churchill Meadow because by the time I found out about her existence, she was just like mad. Like mm -hmm. to me, to me, she represented madness because she was just raving and blinking and spewing hatred. And I'm Russian. So like to me, it was just like it was actually harming me because she was creating hatred for my people. So I, I, I was laughing at your article because it was really, really brilliant. And I got, thank you. And I got a lot of responses from people that said also they used to watch her and they were a big fan of hers and they, they can't stand it anymore. So, um, you know, and people believe that, you know, of course the station is funded by big pharma. Um, but, and a lot of us have a question that we keep coming up is like, do they believe their lies? Like, do they know this is true? Are they saying this because they're paid to say it? No, or like media has to have integrity. Media, absolutely. Because Rachel Maddow and anybody, I, I do not, she's a smart woman. She's not a dummy. So there's peer pressure. Yes, there's this whole echo chamber reinforcement, but she's not a dummy. And she has blood on her hands. And that's right. criminal. So like, to me, it's not about like partisanship. I don't care about that. But when your information actually causes people to die, that is a crime. And similarly was with weapons of mass destruction. Journalism, like any other profession, comes with the responsibility on the human level. And she definitely has failed it. So like, she's not on my good list of <laughs> <Right>. people to. <laughs> Right. So, but I'm, as a psychologist, I mean, just as a human being, I'm curious, like, I have an experience of her, a positive, original uh -huh. experience of her, and she's still that same person somewhere. So my, what my curiosity is, like, if someone could sit down in a room with her, like, with a few people for, like, several hours and go through data, like, would she be capable, would she get it? Um, like, what's in there, or what's going on, or does she really believe what she's saying? And, um, or did she become that ruthless, you know, or that corrupt? Um, well, maybe it didn't really cost her much to be. I mean, I'm, I'm speculating. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I assume most people have something good in them. And most uh, people actually quite beautiful if you remove all the noise. But perhaps, and that is my realization. For example, many musicians who I admired as a team, who thought were rebellious, like Western musicians, me growing up in Moscow, that was, they were gods. And now realize they were always just spoiled brats, perhaps. They just liked that fake rebellion because it didn't cost them anything. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to go to jail for their rebellion. They didn't have to suffer. They didn't have to, you know, experience violence. That was cheap. So their rebellion was cheap. Mm -hmm. And they made a career on fake rebellion. And for that, they cannot be blamed. Because if they had a good life, like good for them, right? So it's like they didn't have any other experience. But when things change, that's when their rebellion came to test and they failed. So, and I wish them healing, obviously. I wish them, you know, clarity and recognition of truth. But as far as the impact they're causing on the world, not good. And mm. they are responsible for that existentially. Yeah. Like they are responsible in, in mysterious ways. Yeah. And, they better figure it out. Yeah. So there are a lot of blood on a lot of hands. And if I could have changed like one thing back in the beginning, it would be NPR, National Public Radio. And the reason I say that is 
many of us um, in the U.S. and so, you know, we all have the experience of losing all of our friends and or just all of our friends and colleagues completely, 100% totally believing the fabricated narrative. And I've been on Zooms with people that I've known for decades who've written books, uh, who are academic, who are scholars, who are have wonderful values or people, mentors of mine who've like even written about stuff like this. Um, and they'll say, oh, those, you know, people are killing people and, you know, the Republicans and they're killing people or a colleague who's a psychoanalyst and says, well, if I have a client who doesn't want to get the vaccine, I'll just say, well, what if you got COVID and you gave it to someone and you killed them? Like you would feel, you know, um, and people I know, like believe this. So the thing is, one is, I think we've all, I read a really good piece um, on betrayal. Um, he talks about like people grow up trusting, people trust, like the people who believe all of this are decent, intelligent people and they're not experts in this area and they've grown up trusting NPR. I mean, I grew up that if where you get your reliable news. So, I mean, I think NPR has blood on their hands because they always have Fauci, Walensky, and Lena Wen. And they're telling like pregnant women to go that they have to get the shot. They're doing all these horror stories on like a pregnant woman who didn't um, get the shot. They do horror stories. Um, it's all very calculated or um, Fauci is telling people who have natural immunity that, oh, they absolutely have to get the shot as soon as they can. And people with natural immunity have a three times higher risk of adverse reaction and death. So one is they absolutely do not need it. The natural immunity is robust against the variants and it's enduring. So they don't need it, but it's not neutral that they're much more vulnerable. You know, you imagine if they have antibodies or whatever in their body from the, that, and then you inject something in that react, that addresses the immune, it sends the immune system into chaos. So, I mean, Fauci certainly has blood on his hands, not to mention decades, you know, well, that, that, that's an African sure. children and Filipinos and orphans and, and all of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, so like there was one, um, I was listening to um, NPR, I mean, like Maria Inahosa, she does Latina USA, I was just happened to be listening and Fauci's talking to her, so she said she had COVID and Fauci said, oh no, you, Fauci told her you definitely have to get the shot, it'll give you better immunity and stronger immunity and will build up your natural immunity and she got the shot and she had a horrible reaction to it, but she still believed it and said, well, she feels a responsibility to go on and tell people. So anyway, NPR and public TV, they're funded by um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Johnson and Johnson. So, and also people trust the CDC, like they grow up trusting that or the FDA, people grow up believing that it protected us from, you know, food poisoning. Um, and also, you want to believe that you're being protected. And, you know, there are institutions that we grew up with that have protected us. And there are regulations that have protected us. So it's, it's not hard to understand why people believe the narrative and why people are attached to it. 
but it, it's um it's a challenge to um to pierce that well for sure and but i think that well people who are not say in the position of Rachel Maddow, people who go about their lives and they're busy, they're scared, there has been a campaign to frighten people. It is tragic, but you, you cannot really kill those people. But I used to work in the media. I take journalism seriously. Okay. Journalism comes with responsibility. So somebody who, she's a smart woman and I don't think it's possible for her to just not understand that she's lying through her teeth. And again, I wish her clarity and healing just like I wish it to everybody else, but the responsibility is there and existentially she will have to deal with it sooner or later. But anyway, let's get back. I, I really, I'm really curious about your theory as far as the mass formation psychosis and your kind of addendums to that. Okay. So many people are probably familiar with the psychologist Matthias Desmet. He's a Belgian psychologist at University of Ghent, and he also um, has a master's in statistics. And he has a model of mass formation, mass hypnosis, um, that, you know, people are very um, deep, deeply interested in, and it's, he's opening the door to really understanding the psychological dynamics of what's going on. And, and there's so much psychology going on that it's very good um, that he's um, attracting interest of a lot of people. So basically, in the very beginning of the of COVID, um, he, as a statistician, he noticed that people were predicting way, way, way more deaths then really happened like neil ferguson predicted two million people were going to die or in sweden they said eighty thousand people were going to die but only six thousand people died and then he noticed like why didn't they correct these you know you can you know make mistakes in the beginning of something but then you correct them or you change the policies but nobody changed the policy they were just still going on like with all these big terrifying numbers and then he noticed that nobody questioned the lockdown, like um, like whether the policies were working or whether more people were being harmed by the lockdown. And it seemed like there were people gonna die from starvation or isolation or trauma. And that people, all they cared about were the victims of COVID and not the other victims. So these puzzled him, this started puzzling him, like why, what, what's going on here? And it, after it took him like three months to connect what was going on to a theory that he'd been teaching for three or four years, which was the theory of mass formation. Then, then it all lined up for him and it all, all clicked. So basically the theory is that, um, and he's, he's writing about totalitarianism and when it can take over and what social conditions. So there are four conditions. One is social isolation. People feel isolated. They don't have close, meaningful relationships. Um, the, Second one is um, meaninglessness, a lack of meaning in their life and in their work and having jobs that are meaningless to them. One, the other one is free floating anxiety. So it's anxiety you have that's not attached to a mental image. Like you're, if you're afraid of a lion, you can avoid that. You know what it is and then you can live your life and avoid it. But if it's free floating, it doesn't attach to anything and you can't address it. And it's, it's really psychically in, intolerable. And the other one is pent up 
anger and rage, frustration, anger and rage. So, you know, these dynamics were starting before, you know, they, um, I actually wrote a piece like when Obama was first elected on political hysteria. And then when Trump was elected, there was more political hysteria. Actually, I think what's going on, and I'll, I'll just make a brief point about this and then I'll get back to Desmond, but there's talk about mass psychosis. I do not think we're at mass psychosis yet. I think that's more like the witch burnings and in the street with audiences. I think there is mass hypnosis and mass formation, but I think there's mass, I think the main thing is there's a mass hysteria. So anyway, these, these four conditions, um, you know, during Trump, there was a lot of anxiety and polarization and emotionality in the field. And then, of, of course, as soon as COVID came, so I'm saying riding on the heels of, you know, years and years of anxiety and hostility, um, you know, the lockdown, people were isolated, their lives were meaningless, that all of this was true. So then there comes a narrative that organizes everything and that simultaneously solves all those problems. It identifies the cause of the isolation and the meaninglessness. And it so it, it targets, so it's COVID. And then people immediately feel a social bond with each other. Their lives are full of meaning. And there's a channel for their frustration and rage and anxiety. Then everyone gets focused on this. So all these intolerable, painful emotions um, ha- there's kind of a relief in this and it solves everything. And then you're with other people and everything makes sense. And that it's hypnotic because there's like a singular focus. That's why you can only focus on COVID and not worry about um, other, you know, the people who are committing, you know, depressed, suicide, anxious, or losing your business or all the other traumas or people are willing to sacrifice for this. So um, what I would add Oh, and then what I would add to Desmond is that I know people like young people who are just starting their lives and, you know, getting their work and their identity and like their, their social fabric was ripped away from them and they feel all this anxiety. But I also know people like my colleagues who are not at all isolated. Um, they have, you know, rich family, they, their lives are full of meaning. They're successful. They've written a lot of books. And they're also buying the narrative. So I hold NPR, um, you know, that it, um, meaning that in a general sense, specific and in a general sense, that the narrative is compelling to them. Um, and then Desmond talks about their three groups. There are people that um, buy the narrative that go along with it that are true believers. And they're the ones that are really hypnotized. There are people who are immune to being psychologically manipulated who see everything that's going on. And I'll call them like, well, you don't have to be courageous to necessarily see the truth, but people who are immune to being manipulated, who can see through everything. And then there's 40% in the middle who are confused or they may not believe the narrative, but they go along with the dominant thing out of peer pressure and social pressure. And they don't, no one have the ability, capacity to withstand it. So his strategy is also, one is we have to keep speaking out and speaking the truth to prevent the deepening of the hypnosis and that also to create parallel structures and to, to find each other. And that if the 
group of uh, people who recognize the truth and can see through what's going on. Um, as the truth comes out, the 40% in the middle can join the other group. Um, so I have a few other strategies that, um, so that those are, so his four strategies were, you know, speak the truth, create parallel structures, um, and also be nonviolent and we and not to play into the, the narrative. Um, so I have a few other ones. One is if we're being hypnotized, then we have to dehypnotize. So you have to like break the spell. So there are like techniques of doing that. And I'll just give one example that every time we use the word vaccine, it's a hypnotic induction that these um, mRNA shots and DNA shots are not vaccines, but they call them vaccines in the very beginning. And that was very deliberate and intentional because when, when your psyche, when you hear the word vaccine, people think, you know, polio, smallpox, whether the, our beliefs about them are accurate, but it, um, people believe that it saved humanity and it's completely wiped out disease and people have a, an incredibly powerful psychological um, association with the word vaccine. It talks to your psyche. So if we have to use different, we have to use language, we have to call things by their real names. And vaccine isn't the only one, but it's probably the most frequently mentioned word in the world everywhere. So I, I wrote a few pieces on um, name that shot or vaccine, non-vaccine by any other name, like asking people for um, candidates that we can come up with a good word to use and to use it instead. And that it demystifies. So like when you use a different word, your brain says, oh, it's not that, it's something else. So some of the ones are quaxine, toxine, hacksine, like hacking, clot shots, that's uh, Dr. Ryan Cole, um, Frank Boyle, uh, Franken shots. I was calling them vaccine in name only, vinos. So one thing we have to change our language um, to describe what's really going on. Um, another strategy, people, as you know, there's unbelievable amount of censorship going on. And I just see, saw today that your interview with Meryl Nass was censored. Five minutes after I posted the story, five minutes less yeah. than it's amazing. They're good, they're so good, and I, I've been censored. Actually, I've been censored on Medium, so I'm now on Substack, where I'm much happier. Um, but the censorship is overwhelming, in that there are doctors and nurses and hospitals that uh, can't speak up, or they'll they'll lose their jobs, and they'll be threatened. Many have lost their jobs. So Steve Kirsch working, he's doing every, like more than any human being um, that, and he's also working on the March this Sunday for unity and um, against the mandates. So he's having a, he's trying, he's very creative and he's always thinking of strategies. And one is we have to make it safe for these people to speak out that they can speak out. They want to speak out. They're conflicted. They're upset about what they're seeing and they, can't take the personal risk. Like few people do take a personal risk, but it's costly to them and their families. So he wants, he's having a day of freedom of speech. He figures if a hundred thousand doctors all speak out on the same day, they can't like go after all of them. Um, oh, another thing that I did that I really want to mention 
is I was very gripped by the whole um, push to get um, inject children um, who have zero chance of dying from COVID, who are asymptomatic, who if they get it, they can get lifelong immunity and they can provide a buffer for adults. So I watched all the FDA and CDC meetings about this where they like really manipulated and you know the studies were done on very few people for a very short time and they denied the adverse reactions and they exclude people from the studies like if there were subjects if you had if you were in a study and you had a reaction to the first shot you're excluded from the study so i mean they're all kind of dirty tricks that they do but the you know immediately after they did the um they approved for the shots for children there were pop-up clinics like they were ready to pounce on them so every school had a pop-up clinic community centers like these pharmacies and safeway in washington um so like all these kids would come and they would get popsicles and hula hoops and you know superhero all this campaign like you're a superhero and you're going to protect your grandmother and you're saving the world if you get these shots and we don't know anything about what it's doing to their future fertility or myocarditis so i'm very interested in informed consent and um i guess children are incapable of informed consent their parents are capable of conformed consent but informed consent but the parents delegate their responsibility to the school and i have you know grandkids in this situation so if the school is hosting a pop-up clinic or if the community center is hosting a pop-up clinic then every family has every reason to believe that it's safe and that they wouldn't do anything to harm their children so why should they you know do all the research if they they're pretty if they've been told it's safe and effective and it'll help their children and protect their grandmother of which i am one so um i wrote a consent form a truly informed consent form checklist, which is like, yes, no, I am informed that, um, you know, my child is incapable of informed consent. I am accepting responsibility. I am informed that these drugs are experimental. I am informed that there's no long-term study and that we don't know about the future. I'm informed that children have zero chance of dying from COVID. Um, I am informed that children do not transmit to adults. I am informed that the studies were done on very few people, followed for a very short time. I informed that, you know, so it's like a list of 18 things. And then Steve Kirsch wrote me, did you put that um, they kill 117 children for everyone that they save? So Toby Rogers did a study on Substack calculating there's a, a the number needed the number of shots you need to save a life. So he calculated right. that you kill 117 kids for everyone you save. So I added that onto it. So I haven't done this and it's on sub. So I they just last week or the week before they approved of the shots for 12 boosters for 12 year olds, even though in other countries they're not doing this, they're halting it in other countries. So I thought of like people could print out these forms and hand them out to parents at the clinic so before they take their kid to get jabbed they could maybe read that that you know or also i came up with the concept of informed collusion 
So if you're the school nurse or the school principal and or the medical advisory team of the school and you're hosting a clinic, you're colluding with big pharma in subjecting these little bodies to be injected. So uh, when people want to find you, what, where is the best place? Is it your Substack? Um, yes, Substack, Substack is the best place to find me. It's called, my newsletter is called Corona Wise. Yeah, that's a good name. And um, I also have a website that I don't really know how to deal with, but it just has some of my work up on it. It's called consciouspolitics.org. If you want to just see some of my uh, earlier work on political things and human rights. So. Oh, thank you. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing that.